0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part four of our series about mirrors. I didn't think we would get this far, but uh, this is one of those where there's, there's a lot of different uh, alleys to run down as we make our way along the... The historical track. Uh, but today, I guess we're going to be talking about glass mirrors more than we did in some of the previous episodes. But uh, to do a brief recap of some of the uh, the technological milestones along the, the history of mirrors, we, we have, of course, uh, obsidian mirrors that have been made since prehistory. Examples found of these go as far back as like 6000 BCE in Anatolia associated mm-hmm. with the uh, prehistoric proto-city of Çatalhöyük. And then beginning around the 4th and 3rd millennium BCE, you find evidence of metal mirrors mostly based on copper and copper alloys like bronze in Egypt and Mesopotamia. And of course, later mirrors will be made out of other metals like silver. Silver is a common choice in the Roman Empire. Um, And by the 2nd millennium BCE, it seems like metal mirrors proliferate and are found in many settled societies all around the world.
1: Now, before we get in more into the discussion of glass mirror, I want to discuss some things that I read in uh, in the book Mirror Mirror by Mark Pendergrass, which is a, a wonderful text on the history of the mirror, very readable. Uh, in it, he discusses Chinese mirrors at length, and I wanted to share a few things that we didn't discuss previously. For starters, uh, according to Pendergrass, some of the earliest Chinese mirrors, in addition to being ma- made out of uh, some of these other materials we already mentioned, were also made out of polished jade which is mm. very fascinating to uh, to imagine I wasn't able to find a, an image of what this would have looked like but I guess if, if anyone was capable of of polishing jade uh, to the, the level that it could be used as a reflective surface it would be the ancient Chinese who were you know very uh, advanced with the use of jade
0: I don't know but I imagine that would have um, some some similarities with uh, with obsidian as a mirror because it would Provide a, a sort of reflection of outlines, but it would probably offer a kind of inverted or distorted color scheme behind things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in uh, also, Pendergast mentions that mirrors were often entombed with the dead. And in one Chinese tomb, I think from the third century BCE, the corpse's head was, quote, equipped with a wooden box covered with metal mirrors on the inside. Whoa. Which is fascinating. Uh, you'll also find heart protecting mirrors that were sometimes placed on a dead person's chest and uh, and then he goes on to mention a couple of, of other mirrors one that's definitely magical and a, in a in an item of mythology and the other one uh you know one can ask questions about so he describes the, uh, something called the the chao ku pao which is the quote precious mirror that would illuminate the bones of the body which was said to allow people to see not only the reflection but to see their interior organs and to cleanse their innards uh through some means that uh, he didn't have the details on and one of these was said to be kept in a in a grotto in a cliff face and it was said to be 10 square feet in size so it you know pretty enormous for a mirror and could reflect the five viscera of a human being
0: that's so interesting and it parallels some other things we've talked about you know uh, uh mystical traditions about mirrors that they could somehow reflect the true self or reflect something about an image that could not be seen under normal conditions. And I wonder, like, why is this a a common thing to believe about mirrors? Because it's literally not true about them, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're like, that they literally just pretty objectively reflect light in the same way that you would see it with your eyes when looking at something, except, of course, reversed if they're flat or, you know, with some kind of distortions if they're convex or concave.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, another mirror that he mentions uh, was the, uh, the, the Quang Qing, which was said to cast a reflection that, quote, showed the image on the back, as in the back of the mirror, as if the light had penetrated the metal. And he writes that this might uh, have been due to a polishing technique that, quote, caused imperceptible irregularities on the mirror's surface that corresponded to the raised pictures on the back. So again, this would have been a metal mirror, uh, but there would be a back to it, uh, in the same way that we discussed um, uh, mm-hmm. the Chinese mirrors previously, where you have some sort of illustration, a deity, uh, uh, some, some sort of representation of an animal or a mythological creature. And so the idea here is that there would be some sort of imperfections in the metal that would, that would match up with that illustration on the back of the mirror, and that this would be uh, you know, at least a, a unique effect.
0: Oh, I see. So maybe like the distortions in the reflective surface caused by the decoration on the back could also in some way bring the suggestion of the image on the back into your own reflection when you looked into it. Yeah. Um, That's interesting because it sort of pairs with something I was reading about. So I, I was reading a cabinet magazine article Uh, from the year 2004, written by a guy named Josiah McElhaney, who is a glassblower, actually, like a glass artist. uh, And was just writing some about how the the history of uh, mirrors has sort of uh, developed alongside people's changing perceptions of the self. And this is something we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes. And one of the things he mentions is the uh, development of mirrors, especially, say, in, like, 18th century Europe – that had a lot of decorative flourishes on the reflecting side. You know, we've talked about a lot of mirrors that had uh, decorations or carvings, engravings of deities or wishes of good luck or something on the backside. And then just the plain reflective surface on, on the uh, side that would be used. But here, this is combining the two it's putting, you know, maybe a floral arrangement, or uh, or like etchings of something, you know, like cherubs or something on the part that's reflecting you. So it's sort of like placing your own image within a context, maybe a context of beauty or a context of holiness.
1: Hmm. So we've already covered the metal mirror quite a bit, but but at this point, you're probably wondering, well, what about the glass variant that most of us are used to? And uh, I mean, I think some listeners were actually. I had actually written in about this and said, hey, you guys started these series about the invention of the mirror. When are you going to get to the invention of the mirror that we, that we all uh, encounter on a daily basis? Um, well, the first glass mirrors seem to have emerged during the 3rd century CE. They were quite small, uh, concave or convex metal surfaces with glass coatings. Glass mirrors have been uncovered in digs dating back to this century.
0: Yeah, well, actually, I mean, I guess if you want to be really pedantic about it, you could say that the very first mirrors were glass mirrors because obsidian is a natural form of volcanic glass. But clearly what people mean when they say glass mirrors is the kind we're used to today that has a it has a thin pane of clear, very clear, very flat glass. And then behind it, a very thin sheet of some kind of highly reflective metal. And that's what you're talking about here when uh, you, you, you might start to see examples of this around the third century C.E. Now, when it comes to uh, mirrors in this period, especially mirrors in ancient Rome, uh, I already mentioned the idea of silver mirrors, but uh, I've read several sources saying that silver uh, was especially common as a material for looking glasses in ancient Rome. Uh, even uh, Pliny the Elder actually writes about mirrors in his Natural History, which was written in the 1st century CE, and in a section about tin, which he actually calls stannum, which is uh, how it gets its chemical symbol S-N, uh, he, he writes that the finest mirrors uh, used to be prepared at a place called Brundisium, which I think corresponds to a city uh, that is today called like Brindisi or something. It's in southern Italy. Um, but he says that was the case until, quote, until everybody, our maidservants even, began to use silver ones. Uh, so by the time of Pliny, he says silver mirrors are so common that even the poor have them, even the, the serving staff have their own silver mirrors.
1: Yeah, and I think I've read some other um, accounts of of Roman writings uh, that they would even comment about just sort of the mirror craze, just like how yeah. how oh my goodness everybody has these, they're everywhere, uh, and uh, and you know sort of using it as a way to discuss the vanity of the age.
0: Yeah. Uh, now I think th- there is some evidence, like you're saying, that during the Roman Empire there were some mirrors that involved a layer of glass, but but I think most mirrors of this time would not have had glass, they would have been just like a highly polished silver surface right. or bronze surface.
1: But we do see the glass mirror begin to show up. Uh, and, and according to Pliny the Elder, who's actually one of the, uh, we, we often refer to, to Pliny here, but he's one of the, the major sources of the day that that is often referred back to and trying to pinpoint where mirrors are coming from, the glass mirrors are coming from around this time. But according to Pliny, they were the product of the Lebanese city of Sidon. And the Romans copied these techniques for their own mirrors, which became, again, quite the craze. And uh, there's another author, I believe it's uh, Alexander of Aphrodisias, who also wrote about them. So uh, those, are, those are two of the sources you see mentioned. I think these are the two that Pendergrass mentions.
0: So do we know anything about the, the techniques of production in this
1: period? Okay, so uh, according to uh, Mark Pendergast in, the, in that book, Syrian craftspeople near Sidon developed glass-blowing techniques around 100 BCE that allowed them to dip a long, hollow metal tube into molten glass, retrieve a glob, and then use that glob and that tube to blow glass shapes. And such was their skill that eventually they were they were able to do a kind of mass production. Um, Mm -hmm. And it makes sense, of course, that these masters of glass would then eventually develop uh, key mirror-making techniques as well. And, of course, it makes sense that the Roman Empire would then take and then spread this technology. So the result of all this would have been small pocket mirrors produced by blowing a thin glass sphere and then pouring hot lead into it, uh, down into the sphere, coating the inside of it, okay? Mm. And then when this is uh, broken and cut, you had mirror glass. Uh, so if you can, you can imagine that, like forming this, this glob, coating the inside of the glob with the lead, and then breaking that into two, voila, you have the makings of a mirror. Nice. And it sounds like the Roman copies of this technique might've been on the whole less perfect with more flaws in the glass, but they were still quite a sensation. Uh, and I, I'm assuming you know, quite an, an, an improvement in terms of availability over the, the metal mirror. And it just spread throughout the Roman world.
0: Now, I imagine these probably, based on the technique you're describing, would not have been super flat, that you, you would probably be ending up with somewhat convex or concave mirrors.
1: Yeah, they would at least be, uh, you know, convex to, to some degree, you know. Mm-hmm. Um now, one of the interesting things is that even though this was widespread, even though the Romans copied it and, and you were uh, seemingly producing them in more than one location, with the fall of the Roman Empire, the art of convex mirror making was nearly lost. It was kept barely alive, apparently, in the Near East. Um, and, but until the 12th century revival of mirror technology in Europe, it would largely be returned to silver and bronze mirrors that were beyond the budgets of most Europeans. Um, so, yeah, you had the, the the secret of the glass mirror survive in the East and continue to be you know a, a matter of study in um, in the Islamic world, where there was a lot of study of mirrors and optics. however, eventually, you start having these uh, these these mega projects coming together in Europe, the Gothic cathedral, and of course, you need glass, you need glass artisans. And so during this time, the production of mirrors, too, began to flourish again. And by the 15th century, you had glassmakers in Germany, France, and Italy, that it all improved quite a bit. Apparently, the glassmakers of Florence were pretty well known, but the Venetians really took the cake, uh, particularly uh, on the Isle of Murano. So from the 11th century onward, uh, the Venetians held a virtual monopoly on European trade with the East. And so the importers here, they learned glassmaking. Perhaps I think there there are a couple of different theories, as Pendergrass describes it. You know, they might have learned uh, some key stuff from the Germans. They also might have learned key things from uh, the Islamic world, from Islamic exporters, again, where uh, some of the secrets of mirror making and optics uh, were, were kept alive. And so either way, maybe... From both influences, they begin making their own excellent glasses and mirrors, and the Venetian glassmakers formed their own guild in the early uh, 1200s. But, of course, one of the things about making glass, blowing glass, and making mirrors is you need furnaces. Mm. And of course, that's dangerous to a city like Venice. So they were made; they were they were forced to move their production out to an island, the island of Murano, and this became the island of mirrors. And this is where the art of mirror making was closely and violently guarded. So you could be sentenced to death for sharing the secrets of glass making. Uh, and families of glassmakers, apparently, who left. Uh, uh, the island and the region would sometimes have their families held hostage uh, to ensure they returned, and they didn't share these uh, these vital secrets elsewhere. It's like uh, it's
0: like the the KFC herbs and spices recipe. It's like yeah, yeah. You know,
1: I, I mean, mean, it's a big business. These were. Because not only did they have the secrets of making mirrors again uh, and, and, and doing the, all this fine glass work, uh, glass making also evolved further here, it developed further, so uh, mm-hmm. clearer glass work was suddenly possible, even clearer mirrors and they were just a huge craze, especially in the high society of Europe. so they had a vital economic commodity here, so they tightly guarded it
0: yeah they they had a uh, a beautifully clear glass that was known as cristallo. Yes. So, developing out of these trends after the Renaissance, glass mirrors with metal backing became more and more common. And uh, the, these had a couple of necessary technical features in order to be of very high quality. So, you would need to be able to produce a pane of extremely clear, extremely flat glass and then a flat backing of highly reflective metal on one side of it. So when you look at a mirror today, typically what you're looking at is there's a pane of glass and it has been coated on the backside with highly reflective uh, metal. And then so you're looking into the glass and your reflection is bouncing off of that reflective metal and then back through this very clear, very flat glass undistorted towards you. And this could create very nice mirrors, but there there were a few wrinkles here. One thing is that up until the 19th century, the dominant method for producing glass mirrors was creating a problem. Uh, So let's say it's the early 1800s, and you are a you are a, a a factory, a mirror factory owner. You own a shop floor that makes mirrors, and you look out at your workers. And you think, something is wrong with these people. My workers, they keep getting irritable and depressed, and they don't have any energy, and they can't pay attention to things I'm telling them, and they get tremors and delirium in the middle of a shift. Why can't I get better workers? Well, like many other stories uh, around this time in history, it turned out it is not the fault of the workers, but of the materials they were being subjected to on the shop floor because the mirrors of this time were made with metal backing that contained large amounts of mercury. And here we're back to a pretty familiar historical subject for our show, which is uh, overexposure to mercury and the health effects thereof. Uh, in this case, we're talking about mercury erythism, or Mad Hatter's disease, colloquially, which is a neurological disorder resulting from overexposure to mercury. I think it's especially common uh, with mercury fumes inhaled.
1: Yeah, we've discussed this on the, the show before. In p- particular, professions of the day, of course, you are more likely to be exposed to these mercury fumes.
0: And so the workers in these, uh, in these looking glass shops are, are just continually being exposed to the horrors of breathing mercury fumes and, and just generally being exposed to mercury all the time until we get the intervention of uh, a pretty cool figure in the history of chemistry named Eustace von Liebig, who was a German scientist who lived from 1803 to 1873. And von Liebig was responsible for a number of important advancements in organic chemistry and agricultural science that made farming more reliable and famine less common. One of his big contributions is to the modern science of fertilizers, nitrogen fertilizers, and to a better understanding of the relationship between crop success and trace mineral contents in the soil. Uh, like, uh, I think one of the things that's often remembered about him is that he established that, you know, basically your the success of your crops is going to be limited by whatever the soil is poorest in, like whatever the most limited essential nutrient that the plants need, whatever is the most limited in the soil is going to be the factor that limits the growth of the plants. And so, you could, uh, and so you could fix that by, say, bringing in animal manure, which contained many minerals and nutrients that plants would need and would help even out the nutrient profile of the, the soil. von Liebig was also a pioneer in the perhaps gross, but also important <laughs> science of meat chemistry. Uh, he, he was really big on not letting nutrition go to waste. So, for example, the kind of nutrients that would be wasted If you were to boil a hunk of beef and then discard the cooking liquid, you know, in that case, a lot of good nutrition is being extracted by the cooking process and then left in the water. Uh, So von Liebig uh, was, you know, used this information to try to develop special cooking methods and uh, in the creation of what was called a meat extract, which could be made into a broth or a meat tea. Huh.
1: This reminds me of our past discussions on both gravy, but also uh, ultimately the, the various sauces that be, that uh, inspired ketchup. Uh, oh, the yeah. idea that after you're you're done rendering or cooking that uh, meat or the fish or whatever it happens to be, you're you're often left with these dregs that are uh, th- that can be super flavorful. Um, that can certainly have still have a a fair amount of nutritional value. And then what do you do with them? Right. Obviously, meat tea.
0: Right, yeah, you make meat tea, uh, which I don't know it's funny, like I don't find the idea of a of a beef broth gross, but when you phrase it as meat tea, it sounds disgusting. <laughs> maybe that's because I'm imagining adding uh cream and sugar to it.
1: Mm. well, I mean so much with smell, uh, I think we've discussed in the science of smell oh, before. Yeah. it's about it's about how you're framing it um, like that's a good the, point. The cheese versus uh smelly shoe example is a is a big one, you know, depending on how people are, are primed, they'll they'll interpret the smell in a different way. Um, my wife and I had a, had a similar situation very recently. We were out walking through the neighborhood, and it was garbage day. And mm-hmm. we walked by this one garbage can, and we're like, oh my goodness, that's absolutely foul. Uh, then we realized it wasn't the garbage can. It was somebody grilling seafood just a block up whoa and of course it was actually not a foul smell at all that it, it was you know a rather blur pleasing smell oh so you know somebody's grilling some delicious seafood but if you walk by a garbage can and you smell it if you associate it with the garbage can then you might be more inclined to to, to interpret it as a foul odor
0: you ever um you're walking around somewhere say by a bunch of restaurants or buildings or something and you smell that 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 delicious fried food carnival smell, you know, it's the Mm -hmm. smell of of funnel cake and corn dogs and all that. It's like, mmm, so, so good. And then you realize what you're smelling is the old grease disposal dumpster behind the place. (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. I've had that situation as well, yeah.
1: Very cool. But for a second, the rat brain is the one uh, calling the shots.
0: yeah. But anyway, uh, so how does von Liebig connect back to mirrors? Well, remember, the the problem is with the mercury exposure that the workers are facing on these factory floors. In 1835, Eustace von Liebig also discovered a process for making metal-backed glass mirrors in a way that wouldn't be nearly as hazardous to the health of the workers. So instead of using mercury... Uh, Von Liebig's method began by applying silver nitrate in a solution of ammonia to the back of the glass and then exposing that to fumes of formaldehyde. And this would trigger a chemical reaction, reducing the silver nitrate solution to a thin layer of silver stuck to the back of the pane. And apparently in 1856, he came up with with another improved method uh, of doing this. And manufacturers eventually found that the layer of silver could be protected by covering it with layers of paint and varnish. And the, the von Liebig silvering method became the new standard for several reasons. Uh, first of all, Silver reflected more light than the older recipes involving things like mercury and tin. It was less prone to tarnishing, at least within this application, when it's protected by these, these layers of paint and varnish. And, of course, I think we would say ethically, most importantly, it didn't poison the workers, or at least not as much. Um, so, uh, so the von Liebig method, I think, really is the precursor to how most modern glass mirrors are made today. One thing that's kind of cool—you can probably find this if you if you just look up like a you know one of those how it's made type videos on a mirror factory. But uh, I I don't think I'd quite ever thought about this. But most mirrors today, I think, are made as huge sheets. So you will you will start with a large sheet of glass that is you know, uh, highly polished to the correct specifications. And then it is coated with some highly reflective metal backing and then coated with some paint to to protect the metal backing. And then that huge sheet of mirror material is cut into the shapes that you will need for, I don't know, whatever the the individual mirror framers or manufacturers are, are turning it into after that. But you kind
1: of just start with like these big old sheets of mirror stuff kind of the creation of a almost like a mirror raw material that, that is then rendered down into these smaller forms
0: yeah i'm not sure i wonder what happens with the leftover parts so like you cut the like circles and ovals and squares out of it that you're selling to people and then what do you have do you have borders of mirror stuff left over i wonder what i don't, happens I don't know to just that.
1: smaller and smaller mirrors so like for instance uh is a dentist mirror made from that same process or do you need a a, a different mirror making technique in order to get that particular mirror are there certain requirements for a for a dental for dental instruments that requires a a different mirror making process I don't know
0: that's a good question I don't know if dental mirrors do involve glass or not
1: I don't know they might just be metal metal. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird I've had for something that has been inside my body so many times I, I don't think I've had a good look at it
0: yeah I've never had a good look at that cavatron either. I just like <laughs> close my eyes and respect your work, dentists. Y- y'all, y'all do great things, but uh, uh, you know it's not fun.
1: Yeah, and you can't ever ask about these things either. I mean, sometimes you, it, I, I can get a question out here and there, but it's it's hard, you know, because they're in your You're right. So, uh, at this point, I want to talk a little bit about uh, more about the mirror and metaphor, uh, and the mirror and literature, uh, and, and the arts in general. So, we've spoken before. I think we've already touched on it in these episodes even about the importance of technology in our metaphors, and of course, mirrors do factor pretty heavily into our just everyday language. Mirrors and reflection. Uh, if you, if, for instance, if you're researching some podcast episodes on mirrors. And reflections, you'll you'll often find this. You know, you'll think you have a good source, and you'll start looking around in the source for mentions of mirrors and reflection. Then you realize, oh, well, some of these are not actual discussions of mirrors or reflections. They're just using them <laughs> to discuss other things. Uh, they're using them as technological metaphors to discuss something else that might actually be in, in, in within the same topic or an adjacent topic, etc. And of course, one of the things about technological metaphors, as we've discussed, is that. You can use a metaphor of a technology that you don't fully understand to describe another thing that you don't fully understand. and uh, But in a, in a weird way, it can be this heuristic that allows you to, um, uh, I don't know, to go through your day feeling like you understand what you're talking about. Like the example we've often referred to is like the idea of, OK, security, video camera and memory, I'll use this technological metaphor to understand my memory, even though I really don't understand how the video camera works and I don't understand how memory works. And it's giving me an actual, you know, particular, but possibly harmful, but at least incorrect idea of what my memory is and what my visual perception consists of.
0: Right. And so the mirror seems like a, a perfect example of this kind of uh, object of metaphor.
1: Yeah, because, of course, the mirror is for the most part it is a technology we're talking about something that is um yeah yes it can occur naturally but then we have this history of of using technology to augment it and increase it until we get into this mirror age that we live in and yeah it's it's difficult to get through your day without using mirror terminology uh i challenge anyone to try it I, or or imagine any work of art without references to mirrors. Uh, so I was looking around for any writings on this, and I found a, a book, a really interesting book from 1983 by Herbert Graves, titled uh, The Mutable Glass. And uh, particularly, it's about the, um, the use of the mirror as a, as a metaphor, as a symbol, etc., in medieval European literature. And uh, yeah, I was rather taken uh, with, with parts of this book. I want to read a quick quote from it before I continue. Quote, the employment of the mirror in metaphorical contexts is so frequent and deliberate a strategy in the English literature of the 13th to 17th centuries that the mirror can be said to constitute the central image for a particular worldview. Okay. So much of the book that follows is is concerned with fleshing this out, you know, this is the central thesis of the book, but, but in brief, like, the mirror becomes this kind of metaphorical center, a frequent focus of art and literature and the subject uh, and tool of scientific study as well. So, it's, it's really this kind of mirror mania. Mm-hmm. Now, Graves is, is up front that his chief focus is on medieval Europe – 13th through 17th centuries but also points out that you do see it you do see the use of mirrors show up in earlier literatures as well but during the time period of focus here he writes that you could you could almost call it a fad it was just so frequently employed it was this kind of mirror mania and the reasoning for this uh, he writes is first of all 12th century Europe had relearned the ancient art of making glass mirrors, and the following century saw uh, uh, medieval polished metal mirrors overtake those of antiquity. Because again, remember, the the secret was lost, and and it was just the, the rich who could still uh, hang on to these uh, antique mirrors uh, made of metal, or or the or even some of these antique uh, uh, you know glass ones that no one knew how to make anymore. But mm-hmm. again, by the fifteenth century, uh, Venetian glassmakers had pushed the technology to the point that the general public could get their hands on these small small, mass-produced, and ultimately inexpensive mirrors. Also during this time, like we've been discussing, tin and mercury backings overtook lead and silver, and mirrors became larger. And he ultimately compares this to, um, uh, he compares this a little bit uh, to how popular the photograph became in the 19th century the craze of photography mm. and uh and we would of course refer back to our invention episodes on on this where we we talked about just what a game changer this was and how it it just it amazed people it captured the public imagination and and it also changed the way we thought about ourselves and how we interact with the world yeah and i think um
0: had some effects on how we thought about the ideas of like uh, the the objectivity of reality. Like for the yeah. first time, that an an image of reality could be fixed in time in a somewhat objective way.
1: Right. So Graves writes that the mirror becomes just indispensable uh, when it comes to fashion. It becomes a central focus of art. Um, uh, the, the mirrors, uh, you know, had been of interest to great thinkers of antiquity. Uh, And the great thinkers of the Middle Ages likewise picked it up and were fascinated with it as well. So it's you just imagine just everybody, every corner of life, no matter what your focus, you're turning to the mirror. Are you engaging Mm -hmm. in theology or engaging in philosophy? Are you a scientist? Are you just someone who's really into your appearance? Like the mirror is going to play a role in pretty much all of these contemplations. Yeah. Um, and, of course, his book is, is just full of examples of this, so I'm not going to you know, roll through them. But uh, for one literary example, you can, of course, turn to Dante. Uh, Dante makes extensive use of mirrors in the Divine Comedy. Um, and I was, I was reading another article that points out some of the examples here titled Light Reflection, Mirror Metaphors, and Optical Framing in Dante's Comedy by Simon Gilson. In this, he points out that Dante drew on his knowledge of the law of light reflection, uh, weakening by reflection, and the multiplication of mirrored light, uh, as well as the lead backing required to make surfaces reflective, uh, oh, then the mirror, the mirroring properties of water, and the kind of image that is visible in a mirror. Uh, apparently, you see all of these different uh, ideas reflected in the Divine Comedy. And in this, we have, I think we've touched on this before on the show, we have to remember that Dante was a man that was interested in a vast number of topics, and he managed to work just about all of them into his into his writings, you know, from mm-hmm. theology and mythology to politics and personal grudges.
0: Yes, but I mean, th- this does remind me how many parts of the Divine Comedy there are where he's just explaining in minute detail um, things about how the light is striking something or yeah. how an image is created, uh, some of which I think is actually – it can come off as kind of pedantic to modern readers, but some of it is very correct. I think other stuff he has about the physics of light is kind of off base.
1: yeah, but but certainly like he is his eyes are open to to to, to, to an understanding of how light is working and how reflections are working. and then we see that in the work. Uh, I think some of the, the the key examples are from Purgatorio and Paradiso. Um, there's one in particular that uh, uh, that Gilson highlights. Uh, And this is not one I—this is from Paradiso, which I I haven't spent as much time with. Uh, But uh, there's apparently a scene uh, that, again, I don't remember, where Thomas Aquinas appears and describes how divine light passes from the triune god through angels and so forth. So it's one of these where he's like, he's getting—he's trying to explain this otherworldly, almost, you know, psychedelic effect of beholding the celestial realms and using uh, his understanding— of of optics to do so
0: yeah totally uh th- there there is a lot of light in the parody so
1: <laughs> i was going to pull a quote from it but i was like i was looking over it and i'm like well this is this is kind of i don't know if the 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 listeners want this so, <laughs> <laughs> um i one of the things about um about the divine comedy i mean it's it is in its entirety a, a masterwork of um a, of western literature and medieval literature for sure but um it is uh it's more. It's ultimately, I think, more fun when you're in hell. Uh, it's more fun in Inferno. Like, There's just a lot more humor, uh, uh-huh. and there's more of you know, the grotesque. And of course, as you work up uh, to Paradiso with Dante, you leave, You increasingly leave a lot of that behind you. And so by the time you get to uh, uh, Paradiso, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a different beast. The Paradiso still has plenty of politics in it that can be quite yeah, funny. It, uh, it is. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's still good. Yeah, I think also maybe I'm a little biased because the when I studied in college I was in a, a Dante class and we were kind of running out of time by the time we got <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to Paradise so we kind of had to rush through it. We we spent a lot of time in Hell and Purgatory.
0: Yeah, I agree. Though the, those tend to be uh, a little bit more uh, they grab you more. Yeah.
1: Now, when it comes to mirrors in visual art, there's there's so much we might talk about here. Uh, we already mentioned the Venus effect in part one of this series, uh, but I thought we might touch on on the art of 15th century early uh, Netherlandish artist uh, Jan van Eyck, who's um, who, who in particular is known for some of his paintings that feature mirrors. In fact, there's one uh, there's one in particular that I think a lot of you have probably seen. And it is um, the, uh, the uh, Arnolfini wedding portrait from 1434. And uh, Joe, would you, would you mind describing this painting for our listeners?
0: Well, let's see. In the foreground, you have two aliens from Zeta Reticuli. <laughs> uh, now, you have two humans who uh, are, are, I guess they are getting married, maybe. They're, they're two very pale people, a man and a woman. The man is wearing a, an extremely comically large black hat. Mm -hmm. And the woman is wearing a large green dress, and they're holding hands, and there is a very cute small dog at their feet. Um, uh, This observation is not original to me. I can't remember where. I read this on some joke thread on the internet long ago that was very funny. But uh, the the author of this thread pointed out that a distinctive feature of the paintings of Jan van Eyck is that everybody looks like Vladimir Putin. (laughs) And in this case, I, I think that is true. Yeah, everybody looks like Putin.
1: Especially the guy in the big hat, yeah, very yeah. Putin-esque. But then, in
0: the in the deep background behind this sweating couple and their little dog, is a wall-mounted convex mirror, uh, and you can tell it's convex because of the way the image is distorted. So it's a round mirror in a sort of wheel-like frame, and then within the the looking glass part of it, the image is sort of bent in the way you would recognize from from a convex mirror. Uh, and, of course, it provides I think what is a fairly accurate rendering of what their reflection would have been, so you 're not seeing the front of them; you are accurately seeing the backs of the people that you 're looking at in the foreground.
1: Yes, you see their backs, you see the rest of the room, and then you see something else though this is and this is this is one of the, the fascinating things about this picture. I think we 've already talked about oh you know f- times in movies where you you accidentally see a reflection of the camera crew. Well, in this painting, that's kind of what is happening, or in some interpretations that's what's happening because there are two individuals in a doorway in the reflection in that 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 strange round uh crinulated mirror, and one of these individuals may be the artist himself,
0: yeah, it's hard to tell because at this point the detail is very small, but you see like a framed doorway and um It looks like somebody dressed in red and somebody dressed in blue are standing there. So it could be like the blue guy is standing there painting the couple, and that is Van Eyck.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. there are some different interpretations of it. And then there are words above the mirror that read, Johannes Van Eyck rules. No, I mean, no, it says he was here, 1434. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) a lot has been written about this work. And certainly, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out, because this is just a beautiful, fascinating painting. Um, But a lot of the ideas and interpretations come down to the eye, to vision, and van Eyck's understanding of optics to relay spiritual ideas concerning the nature of God. So sometimes you see the mirror in this described as the eye of God. I was reading a a little bit more about this mirror in An Optical Revolution in the Middle Ages, The Hidden Talents of Jan van Eyck, and this was by uh, Lieven van den Abel, Translated by Kate Connolly, and this is from the LowCountries.com. Uh that's with hyphens, the hyphen low hyphen countries.com. Mm-hmm. It's an English language website to promote the culture of Flanders and the Netherlands. And in this article, they point out that Van Eyck had First of all, an incredible, actually game-changing talent for painting light, in addition to just having masterful oil painting techniques in general. And he also had a knack for observing the interplay of light and shadow, and then, of course, reproducing that in his work. Um, and, and this kind of you know, leads to the question, well, okay, is it just like a natural ability? Do you just have this natural insight? Do you just have this eye for how light is interplaying with the natural world? Um, mm. Well, that, I think some kind of lean towards that, that interpretation. But then there's, a, there's this other hypothesis that he was actually quite well read on the topic of optics for the day. Hmm. So the author here writes that Van, Van Eyck may, might have learned about optics from the work of Arabic mathematician-astronomer Al-Hazan, uh, who I believe we've talked about before, who lived um, 965 through 1040 In particular, Alhazen's book, uh, The Book of Optics, which was uh, translated into Latin uh, and was also well-known in Europe by the 15th century. Uh, So it presented new theories concerning how we see, how mirrors and lenses function, and how images are formed.
0: Hmm, okay. Okay.
1: Now, Alhazen is sometimes known as the father of optics, and he worked extensively with mirrors and lenses. Um, there's something called Alhazen's problem that is named for him. It's a This is a mathematical problem in geometrical optics, which was uh, actually first posed by Ptolemy in 150 CE, but to which Alhazen provides an answer in his work, Optics. So uh, you can look up, you really should look up images of of the problem if you want a better understanding of it. But the basic problem is often described as follows. Given a light source and a spherical mirror, find the point on the mirror where the light will be reflected to the eye of an observer. Hmm. So Alhazen solved it with geometry, but it remained unsolved using algebraic methods until the 20th century. So, anyway, the idea here is that perhaps when we 're looking at the works of van Eyck we 're looking at someone who had at least some degree of familiarity with these ideas with these uh, with, with uh, the, these learned concepts about optics and the inner workings of mirrors that uh, that, that traveled out of the Arab world into Europe uh, either in that translation of, of his book on optics, or perhaps through another text that referred back to it. Uh, one that the authors mentioned here was John Peckham's um, Perspectiva uh, Communis. And uh, this was an author who lived 1230 through 1292. And this would have been a text available to Van Eyck's as well.
0: I would imagine that the problem of drawing, e- even if you're currently looking at it, The problem of drawing an image as reflected in a convex mirror has got to be really difficult. Uh, I said drawing, but I I guess in any way visually rendering for an artist painting or drawing or whatever, um, because and I, I don't know, maybe we could hear from painters if I'm wrong about this, but my understanding of the way painting works is that. It is difficult to just purely reproduce an image you're looking at as the eye sees it, but you have to kind of rely on some stereotypical forms uh, to reproduce the image on the on the painting. so like you you have in your mind sort of standard forms of things like what a you know how a hand works, how an arm mm-hmm. is, how a face is, and then you are taking those standard forms and reproducing them with the information of the image that you're looking at right now to sort of fill in the detail but i would think those standard forms wouldn't really work for an image that's being distorted by a curved mirror
1: yeah now if you want to hear more about um, how mirrors uh impacted the world of um of, of painting uh, our episode on the camera obscura goes into that a little bit and the different uh, ideas and hypotheses concerning the use of the camera obscura as a means of uh, of augmenting uh, the creative process of painting uh, but uh, but even without getting into this idea of using a camera obscura to project something onto a canvas and then use that as sort of a, a scaffolding on which to you create your art, I, I think the I, one of the ideas here that's that's really tantalizing is just the 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 more that these artists were able to understand what they were seeing, how they were seeing, and how light was working, how shadow worked, enabled mm-hmm. them to better capture it on the canvas. Um, yeah, which. Uh, on, one, on one hand, like this, this totally makes sense. But on the other, I, I do feel like this has to make a special kind of sense to individuals who um, who are well versed in painting and the visual arts. You know, uh, because because yeah, because yeah, what's the difference between painting light and shadow if you don't know what light and shadow really are? And painting light and shadow when you you have a better understanding of of the the optical reality of of what you're seeing.
0: Yeah. Just off mic, Rob and I were discussing whether this is the end of the Mirror series or whether we're coming back for more. And here's the mind blower. We haven't made up our minds yet. So (laughs) you'll just have to be out there dangling, not knowing whether the next episode is going to be something new or whether the Mirror journey continues. But there's a million more interesting things we could talk about. So uh, maybe more mirrors or maybe on to something else.
1: Yeah. And even if the next episode we do is not about mirrors, that doesn't mean we can't come back and do mirrors. So certainly, if if there's anything that you feel that we we missed or we skipped over or something you, you want to know about that we didn't cover in this mirror saga, then let us know. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, if you want to catch up on all these Mirror episodes or look up those uh, Photography, Camera Obscura, etc., you can find all of our episodes in uh, the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, and you'll find that feed wherever you get your podcasts. Core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Artifact on Wednesday, Listener Mail on Mondays, and on Friday we do a a little Weird House Cinema. That's when we set aside most of the science and we just talk about a weird film for a little bit.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.